fish is a big part of the Christmas menu in Europe, but it's really popular all year long in Portugal. Portugal eats more fish per capita than even the Japanese do. Especially cod. You can eat from the tail to the skin, the cheeks, the tongues, the eyes, everything. Coming up, we'll hear how codfish is a staple of home cooking in Portugal. In Italy, the fish markets are crazy right before Christmas. But if you go there on the 23rd of December, that's really a quintessential experience of a market. We'll explore the amazing comfort foods of southern Italy in the hour ahead. What is very typical of Naples is uh, salsicce friarielli. It's sausages with, uh, let's say, broccoli, but it's a very special variety that you can only find around Monte Vesuvius area. Plus, listeners tell us what it's like to travel for the holidays. Come along, it's Travel with Rick Steves. Do you think there's no place like home for the holidays? We'll explore some options for getting away at Christmas time with our listeners a little later in the hour ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. But if you like the scent of great cooking to fill your house, we'll get you inspired by the cuisine of Naples and southern Italy in just a bit. Let's start with a taste of the almost religious reverence for codfish that you'll find in Portugal. The Portuguese love fish, especially cod. Cod has been a staple there since the 1700s, but they don't eat it fresh. It's imported from the North Atlantic, salted hard as a log, and then soaked in water. (laughs) I've long wondered how it is that a country that eats more fish per capita than any other has as its most popular fish a fish they import from Norway or from Greenland, and they never serve it fresh. We're joined now by two Portuguese guides, Robert Wright and Cristina Duarte, to learn more about the Portuguese love of cod, dried, salted cod. Cristina, Robert, thanks for joining us. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Now, that was my, my take on the cod situation Robert, was that accurate? or what? It's how completely you, accurate. It's, it's amazing when you think about how Portugal eats more fish per capita than even the Japanese do. Wow. Which is amazing. And yet they have this wonderful, like, brick hard. But it transforms into something delicious. And be- and it, it's something you start to crave. You do. Yes. That, when I get After... to bacalao, it's one of the few <laughs> words I know in Portuguese is bacalao. Yes. Christina, what is the historical background? Why is this? The historical background is that we are Atlantic. So uh, we are always bathed by the Atlantic Ocean. But the packs of fish that passes under in the Atlantic area over there is they are quite small fish, like mm. sardines, mackerel. Oh, that's right. And, a lot of sardines. Uh, yes. Bream, bass, but they are small. They dry also. Some of them they can dry, but it is not the same amount volume as a codfish. Mm -hmm. The codfish is huge. Mm -hmm. So in the 1400s, when we started to go, I mean, 1400s, going with the discovery spirit, trying to make our way Mm -hmm. out of the economic situation for Portugal, we started to go a little bit to north, to east, to somewhere, and we found out that there is this huge fish, very nutritious, Mm -hmm. and that you can eat everything out of it. You can eat from the tail to the skin, the cheeks, the tongues, the eyes, everything. So it's like the pork of, of the, the water. Sea. The pork and of the sea. Yes, because you, because you eat everything. <laughs> Only a you Portuguese know, could call cod the pork, pork of, of the, the sea. sea. Yes. I love it. <laughs> because you eat everything. And that's why the 365 recipes, yeah. because you 
just take everything from Now, I want to get a cooking lesson in a moment, but mm-hmm. I'm still interested in this historical yes. background because a big issue 500 years ago was refrigeration. Yes. There was none. So it was necessary not only, okay, a person fishes the, the fish, now how do we keep it right. and how do we transport it? So yeah. the best is to flatten. So all <laughs> exactly. Flat okay. is good. Flat is good to transport. <laughs> and it, it occupies less space. It's like space. a bunch of two by exactly, tens. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Stack them up. Stack them. Two by tens and you can eat it. <laughs> and so you open it, you put salt to preserve it. Okay. And once arriving to mainland, you put it to dry. So they would actually, now, they'd go up to Greenland or Norway or Newfoundland? Norway, yes, because it is uh, cold water. They'd fill the bottoms of their boats with yes. cod. Yes. It's salted, it's dried. Yes, yes. And then so it would, it would survive. Yes, and they it could, They could feed their sailors while, while they're working. While they're working. And they come home and they sell it and exactly. they got their money. And another thing is that we are traditionally a Catholic country. Ah. So we had actually need of fish. I mean, every Friday we needed to eat fish. And uh, the 14 days of uh, of the Lent. Of Lent. And yeah. then Christmas and all the big celebrations. Yes. So it, Basically, in cod we trust. A cod we trust, exactly. All right. Now, <laughs> then you had this interesting 20th century history with a dictator, uh, Salazar. Mm-hmm. Yes. And economy was bad. Meat is expensive. People were starving, and especially the north of Portugal, where we have the smallest and the most active fishing villages. And in winter, is very tough and rough, the Atlantic Ocean mm. in Portugal. So most of the fishermen could not get out on the sea. So it was tough to go also on the North Sea to Iceland and to Norway and even to Canada. So most so, of, uh, yes. But with the but tough economy. We are talking about 40, 50, sometimes 60 boats, entire villages going. And Salazar, knowing that this was an important industry and a huge amount of people going, so he was actually organizing these campaigns, the cod campaigns, and there was a boat, a hospital boat, to give them the support in case of something happening. Okay, so Salazar recognized that um, fish would be more affordable with a terrible economy than red mm. meat. And he subsidized and encouraged the cod industry. And then in 1974, Salazar's gone... But people grew up eating cod, and, and Robert, it just the taste is there. Is that the deal? The taste is there, and basically it becomes one of those things that you identify with home cooking, and it's something that you really— It's mama's uh, cooking. It's mama's, yeah. It's Grandma's your, cooking. Yeah, yeah, it's from home. So oh. um, I think everybody has their own favorite take on the traditional Portuguese cod recipes. So take me into a shop first. You go to a shop, and it, it feels almost going like a lumber shop. It's stacked up there, literally. Well, first of all, you don't even have to walk into the shop first because you smell you it to smell from it. far away. <laughs> you do, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. It's a very, it's not a fishy smell, but it's a very salty smell. Yeah. And uh, so you walk in, even in a grocery store, if you were to uh, visit Portugal and just take a tour of your local supermarket, yeah. <laughs> as soon as you walk toward a certain section, you smell that pungent salt. You're like, oh, it's the cod section. And you can pick we're it up. Here. It feels like picking up a baseball bat. You, you are, yeah. <laughs> you can knock is. it and Definitely. it sounds like knock on wood. Yeah. Is, yeah. There, is there any sense of quality or is cod cod? Oh, lots of different variations between quality. So depending on where it's fished, where it comes right. from. Exactly. Uh-huh. And also the cut of where it's from. So some parts of cod have a little bit more flesh. You can spend more and be thankful that you're spending more because yes. you're getting better yes. quality. Yes. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking cod in Portugal with two local guides, Robert Wright and Cristina Duarte. When you go to Portugal, they say, ah, there's a different way to cook cod every day of the year. What's an example of these recipes that people are so excited about? 
Well, a lot of these uh, have either a component of being like a saute dish or like a casserole. So that's kind of like the basic ones you're going to find. Okay. The one that is my personal favorite is the one that everybody eats so often is bacalhau brush. It's in the style of brush. It was actually oh, is that dish. a place? A person. Uh, it's a person. A it was person. created in Lisbon, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, the dish itself was created in a small cafe mm-hmm. in Lisbon that basically people are like, this is a darn good combination um, of, yes. of ingredients. Bravo we love brush. it. Yeah, right. We love it. So we're going to name the dish after him. It's basically uh, cod that's been desalted because you have to desalt either for mm-hmm. one or two days. The base is uh, roasted or baked potatoes, sometimes even mm-hmm. fried potatoes. It depends on everybody has their own variation. And then it's just basically onions that are sautéed until they're pretty much translucent and super, super soft and sweet. It sweetens up the onions. Mm. Uh, and then you mix all these ingredients together, a little bit of salt and pepper, sliced black olives, and then traditionally you put parsley on top. Ah. Uh, you can put cilantro if so you, if you want. Go to a, if you go to a restaurant, uh, just a, a hole-in-the-wall restaurant mm. or a, a nice neighborhood restaurant, you can look for um, bacalao abrache. Yeah. And that would be the good, sort of the, the basic the way basic. to measure it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, it was sitting in salt. Do some dishes have the cod that you actually eat saltier than other dishes, or is it always going to taste salty? It shouldn't, and that's the key. It's like if you go to a place and you order a dish that has uh, a, a cod dish that tastes a little too salty, yeah. they haven't desalted the cod enough. Ah. Well, but I, yeah. as Portuguese, I yeah. have a different opinion, yeah. which yeah. is for us, it's very difficult to evaluate how is the salt uh, it is. It, it is. is. It's a, it's so, a tough... if you don't want risk, what I normally advise to a foreigner people, if you don't risk to have a, a salted cod, the best is to get some recipes like abrash, which you have shredded shredded cod. Shredded cod. Mm. Yeah. But if you ask for a dish that is a nice slice, high slice of cod, okay. you have a very huge probability yeah. of getting some salt out of it. Sure, Christina. You're a mother. You're going mm-hmm. shopping. Take us through the whole process. You go to the yes. shop. How do you buy it? What do you look for? And then when you take it home, how do you serve it to your children? Yes. Yeah, so I uh, I go to the I go to the place where the cod is. I look for one that I I like it white. I'm mm-hmm. so I I can see it. What is more light white? And I don't like it very high because so very a thin high slice, a, a thin is yes, better for you. Thin is better for me because what we are looking is a fish that it has no water, so is dehydrated. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it means that when I'm going to desalt it, it's going to be high. So you're going to hydrate it. Uh, hydrate when you desalt exactly. it. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. When how, I desalt. How, how long does that take? And how, you uh, take depends it and... how thick it is. So okay. that's why I like it uh, mm-hmm. smaller. Okay. Um, so and flatter. T- you toss it in. A because, pan of water? Yes, in a pan of water. Uh, but as before that, I asked the lady in the shop to cut it as I want. Mm-hmm. So I can cut the sides, you know, that are, are thinner. How do they and cut they, it? Do they cut it like Oh, they a have saw? a huge, no, they have <laughs> like a, a huge a guillotine almost. Uh, oh, like a big paper cutter yes, thing. Yes, yes, exactly, right. a paper cutter. And they cut it the slices as you want, how big slices okay. you want and how you want it. So already from the shop, I already decide if I wanted to do it on the oven, uh, just boiled or fried or shredded. So you cut it uh, according to how you plan to cook exactly. it. Exactly. And I normally do the shredded parts, the parts that are not that noble. You see, like the, the girls and the gr- also the, the tail. Gills. The, the gills. gills. The, the gills. So the less noble parts, parts are, yes. are that's the throwaway parts yes. for yeah, the rich exactly. people. Exactly. Yes, but you don't throw away. So you shred those parts or the yeah, head, nice. the cheeks, also the tail. Christina Duarte comes to us from Lisbon. Robert Wright is a former Lisbon resident who now lives in Spain. 
They're filling us in on the central place of codfish in the home cooking of Portugal right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You've got a lot of festivals, and in mm-hmm. Portugal there's just an enthusiasm for festivals. Robert, how is cod worked into Christmas time, for example? Uh, for me, actually, Christmas is, is synonymous with cod, but actually for also New Year's Eve. The Christina, most... what's another festival mm-hmm. use of cod? For your family, is it New Year's Eve also? Yeah. Uh, no, it is Christmas. 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 Mm. Yes. Explain the Christmas And the Christmas, what it is more traditional is it's very boring and very natural, which is just boiled with vegetables and potatoes. But as it is not very rich, and it is a festivity day, yeah. so more and more we do some other recipes. Okay. And my mom loves to do it with uh, breadcrumbs. And well, the good. spinach. It's good that it's... And sometimes some shrimp also. Oh, yeah. It doesn't have a lot of extra flavor to it. Yes. Because the Portuguese desserts come out afterwards. Oh, yes. <laughs> so at least oh. it, it elevates the, <laughs> right. the arrival yes. of the dessert. We've had a lot of cod. Now and there is another, another secret for a good cod. It requires very good olive oil. That ah. is, oh, yes. Spanish olive oil. No, Portuguese. Portuguese. Oh, my goodness. Portuguese. Portuguese. No. <laughs> All right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking cod in Portugal with Robert Wright and Cristina Duarte. Next time I go to Portugal, my first dinner, bacalao. Yeah, bacalao. Abraço. <laughs> Obrigado. Obrigado. How do you say bon appetit? Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Save room for dessert. The culinary traditions of Naples and southern Italy are next on Travel with Rick Steves. And in a bit... Tell us what it's been like for you to travel abroad during the Christmas season. We're at 877-333-7425. And by email, you can reach us at radio at ricksteves.com. Listening to Travel with Rick Steves, by now you know that each region of Italy has its own culinary specialties. In southern Italy, Naples is the city where pizza was invented, and it's home to a lot of the Italian food that's become popular around the world. To help us know what delicacies to look for in Naples and the region of Campania, we're joined now by local tour guides Alfredo Vitale from Naples and Mariana Iramano comes to us from Avellino, where they grow hazelnuts and raise the buffalo whose milk is turned into mozzarella. Alfredo and Mariana, buongiorno. Buongiorno. Thank you, buongiorno. So when we think of Italy, we think of uh, Italian cuisine, but how does it vary from region to region? Mariana? To be honest, all the stereotypes about Italian cuisine, they're mostly from Naples. Because when you think about Italy, you think about pizza. And well, margarita comes from Naples. It was made there for the first time. And the pasta, we have a beautiful pasta called Gragnano pasta. That is made over there. Plus, Americans have this image of Italy, but a lot of it is shaped by which Italians came to the United States. Alfredo, when, when an American thinks of Italian cuisine, how would the immigration uh, shape our, our perception? Yeah, actually, the, uh, the immigration way was mostly from the southern part of the country, which was the poorest part of the country. Those people were the ones that brought their uh, cuisine tradition with them. And uh, this is what we find also in the imaginary of American um, people coming to Italy. They think to Italian food thinking to what they have in their So Italian they go to Milano menu. thinking, oh, I'm going to get what I, th- what I think exactly. about it, but it's uh, probably the cuisine exactly. of, it's, of it's Naples. Mostly, yeah. And also even some of the recipes you find in America from the South are kind of recipes that you don't find in the South anymore. Let's say, for example, spaghetti meatball. Yeah. Huh? So spaghetti, spaghetti meatball, that for the typical American would be the quintessential Italian <laughs> dish. <laughs> it came you, from the South and it's not even cooked there anymore. No, no. All right. Mariana, when a Roman or somebody from Milano goes to Naples, 
What do they think? What do they want to eat? Uh, I believe mostly fish because we live on a seashore and uh, we like to prepare many of primi piatti with fish. They're very popular all around Italy. Hmm. For example, spaghetti with vongole. Okay, so uh, primi piatti would be the first course, generally a pasta with it, some kind of a topping. And yes. That would be a fish topping. Yeah, mm-hmm. mussels. Mm-hmm. Impepata di cozza is very famous too. There's the mussels, peppered mussels. Okay. And the linguine with scampi. So these yeah, are all pastas typical. with with fresh seafood. Yes, it and is. And then they would have a secondi, a main dish mm-hmm. that might not be seafood. No, it can be even uh, what is very typical of Naples: salsicce friarielli. What is that? It's sausages with, uh, let's say, broccoli, but it's a very special variety that you can only find on around Monte Vesuvius area. Okay, now this reminds me of an interesting thing. So you find this Mount Vesuvius. So a good eater. Alfredo will want to eat local style and with the season. Exactly. What does that mean for Naples? What would be oh, local and what would these be the means, seasonal? This means a lot for Naples and this means a lot also in everyday life in Napoli because we have uh, amazing markets and fresh food. So you have to think that most of the Neapolitan people, they don't go to supermarkets. They only go for like goods that you find they're not relating necessarily I to I love food. the markets of Napoli. They're so alive. They're alive, they're colorful, they're rich in, uh, in color, in uh, voices. It's and a it's sensuous experience. All of your senses. Totally. It goes from the view nose, to the palace. Your ears, and it's, your eyes. it's amazing. It's just amazing. And also the relationship that you can entertain in a Neapolitan market are just, just wonderful. The relationship? Yeah. Like, How you so? Know, yeah, you start, you know, just touching one of the products and the, the person there will say, oh, why don't you try this one too? Look, this is better. Oh, you want a little bite? Oh, this is so fun to try it yeah. together. Why don't you fry this? These are fresher. Oh, if you need to boil, though, you have to use these ones, not these ones. And it goes on, can go on forever. So I mean, these merchants care. They don't just want to make the sale. Oh, they want you to make totally. sure to know what to cook totally. and how. And not only the traditional markets. Nowadays, we have more and more farmer's market also in Napoli, uh-huh. which used to be not so common. And now they're getting, on a weekly basis, different parts of the town. If you are from Napoli, you know where to go. Every Get- day, there is a different area where the farmers will come. Getting off the cruise ship in Napoli, yeah. if you turn right and you go halfway to the train station, there's a wonderful market by a gate. Oh, yeah, that's Porta Nolana. Porta Nolana. Yes. Oh. If you go there on the 23rd of December, that's really a quintessential experience of a market. Why? Because people are getting ready to cook for mm-hmm. Christmas Eve, and that's where they go to shop for fish, which is the important base of Christmas Eve menu, and vegetables. Don't you eat an eel on Christmas? Yes, some people still do. This is one of the old traditions, which are kind of getting a little bit, because not everybody likes eel. Well, actually, the the name in Neapolitan is capitone. Mm -hmm. Capitone. And you do it fried, deep fried. So, Mariana, if you and your mother are walking through this market, what's the name of the market again? Uh, Nolana. Nolana. What is the um, interaction with the people? What would your mother be excited about? We usually go out and we have... uh, lunch there because by the time that you are over with the market you have been trying everything you're full and lunch is done for free <laughs> so, so nothing but little samples talking yes, with people learning fresh and tomatoes and yes fantastic this is travel with rick steves we're talking with mariana Yormano and alfredo vitale we're talking about naples and the cuisine of naples our phone number is 877-333-7425 
Elinda's calling in from Deerfield Beach in Florida. Elinda, are you thinking about eating in Naples? Oh, yes. You're making me very hungry listening to all that wonderful food. And I had a lovely food myself in Naples. I didn't go to the market. But one of the places I went to was Michaela's for pizza. Now, it was my understanding, but I could be wrong, that that's where pizza was invented. And we had pizza, mar- the margarita pizza. They only have two kinds, but it had like the colors of the Italian flag with the green basil, the red tomatoes, and the ripe mozzarella. I still wish I could be right back there eating it. And it's so simple. It's so fundamental. It's just a good pizza. And this pizzeria is famous. It's La Antica Pizzeria da Michele. Mariana, when you are having that margarita pizza that mm-hmm. Elinda's talking about, she was describing the colors. What's the history of that pizza? Well, it was made for the first time when the Queen Margarita was visiting Naples. It was at the end of the 1800s, and there was a chef, Rafael Esposito. He didn't know what to make special, so he decided to use very uh, simple ingredients, made on the top the Italian flag. There was the red of the tomato, the white of the mozzarella, and the green of the basil. So to this day, you see the red, white, and, and green, green, the Italian yes. flag, and the pizza named after the queen, Margarita. Yes, Margarita. By the way, there's a lot of great pizzerias. This is the touristy one, and there's a long line there, and exactly. it's very historic, and it's exactly. good. But you don't need to wait in line for an hour to get a good pizza. No. All along Via Tribunale, you've got wonderful pizzerias. Oh, yeah. And in a classic pizzeria like Michele, they have two kinds of pizza, yes. margarita, and what is the other one? Marinara. And what is marinara? Marinara is really basic. It's just tomato sauce, olive oil, uh, some oregano, and somebody asks to have some anchovies. And it was very simple, very also poor, because the name marinara comes from the people that used to be fishermen, so marinai, Uh mariners, and the wives would bring this pizza to them when they would come back from the sea. So it was really, no a poor. Maybe a few anchovies on it. Yeah, that's (laughs) why the anchovies probably come, where the anchovies come from also. There is something so basic and beautiful about that pizza, though, and a lot of Americans think the more toppings, the better. Exactly. But I think Italians would think differently. They do think differently, and they do think also that some toppings are not allowed. Elinda, does that resonate with you, the pizza experience? Absolutely, and it was just wonderful, and I can't wait to get back there. And then I also had a wonderful dessert that I was told I had to have in Naples, and I don't remember the place where I went. I know I was walking from Michele's towards the train station, and Spagliatella, something I'm not pronouncing it properly. Oh, yeah, Spogliatella. Elinda, that's going to bridge us right into sweets, and it's dessert time. Thanks for your call, Elinda. Thank you. Bye. So Elinda's talking about sfogliatella, and that's a classic sort of Neapolitan sweet. Yes, it is. Mariana, what exactly is that? It's with ricotta cheese and dried fruit inside and very crunchy and crispy the outside. Mm. And why is it so popular? Because it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Alfredo, what is your favorite Neapolitan dessert? If you're going to take somebody out in something very classic Neapolitan. Ooh. There are a few, and and also desserts in Napoli are seasonal, like the other things. Oh, yeah. uh, so you can get uh, sfogliatella and baba, actually, you get those all year round. And uh, when you get closer to uh, Easter time, you get the pastiera, which is an amazing uh, cake, uh, which is filled with ricotta, with wheat, mm-hmm. 
uh, and it's very very. What is nice. the name of that? Pastiera. Pastiera. Yeah. And is there a Christmas cake? No, also? that's a that's Easter cake. Easter cake. Easter okay. cake, and it's really very good. Now, actually, you find it all year round in every okay. every pastry shop in Napoli. But was, the tradition was for Easter, and then when you get closer to Christmas, there are a lot of mm. uh, very typical desserts like the struffoli, which is. Struffoli. Yeah, struffoli is like very simple. It's uh, deep fried dough, small balls with a lot of honey and uh, beautiful uh, little candies on the top. And that's a very, very, very typical uh, Neapolitan. Sort of a festival. It is. And it's also a good connection to the little Arabic influence that we have in Napoli because it's a good connection also with the Sicilian desserts, which are very close to the Arabic tradition. But uh, this one in Napoli, the struffoli is the closest to the Arabic tradition, actually. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Mariana Yermano and Alfredo Vitali about a Neapolitan cuisine, the beautiful food from Naples and that region. And Mariana, you've got a very tempting plate of what looks like high-calorie treats from Naples right here. You've brought it to our studio. Can I have a little bit of this? Yeah, sure. So have it a try. What, what is this first one? It looks like a, a hard, sort of flattened donut. That is called rococo. Rococo. It yeah. feels like I want to um, dip this into of something. Of course, you should. That's why I brought some limoncello, too. Oh, you can dump it, dip it yes. in a limoncello. Yeah. So there's lots of different biscotti in Italy, mm-hmm. and to dip it is part of the fun. It yes. extends the dining experience in a lovely way. And what what am I tasting here? This is it's this mostly is. almonds in there. Mm. So this is like a, a dippable almond biscuit, and the name of that again is? It's Rococo. Rococo. And for the second course of my dessert, I see a beautiful chocolate cake here. It's a, it's a small chocolate cake, and um, it's a little more fragrant. What exactly am I eating here? That is called mostacioli. Mostacioli. Yes. Mm. And, uh, has it's more than chocolate. What is, what is, is in this? As I eat it, describe the ingredients that I'm tasting. So you have cinnamon mm-hmm. and lemon, mm. honey, and of course, dark chocolate. Oh, yeah. Now, that is a, a beautiful marriage of flavors. Yes, it is. And it makes it special. We usually have them on Christmas time. Mm. Do I have to wait till Christmas? Mm, you should, because you don't find them around. Mm. I love it. This is an example of uh, centuries and centuries of wonderful love of food, experimentation, and creating a tradition that we can eat. Yes, it is. Do you like to eat? Oh, I love to eat. <laughs> was your mother a cook? She was. She was. What did she cook? She was a cook in a in a school, and she left when she had the third child. Mm-hmm. Um, she used to make eggplant parmigiana. Mm. Do you make eggplant parmigiana? Of course I do, yeah. It's my specialty because I put love in it. Uh, <laughs> it takes time. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look like, mm-hmm. but uh, he has a long, uh, long, long making process. So, Alfredo, if you eat some eggplant parmigiana, can you tell if there's love in it? Oh, actually, you do. Yeah? Yeah, it's possible because it's really, actually, as she said, it's not an easy mm-hmm. cooking thing. It's a long uh, process. And also, it is uh, important to do with good timing and mm-hmm. using fresh products. Mm-hmm. And you can recognize people that do it because just they have to do it or they do it because they love to do it. That's one of the typical traditional ones. And actually, Neapolitan uh, people are going back a lot to tradition. Mm. In the cuisine. Well, right now I'm eating some Neapolitan tradition. And you I'll are. Tell you, that's that's a, a Christmas tradition. Delizioso. Alfredo Vitali, Mariana Germano, buon appetito and grazie. Mille grazie. A presto. 
Vino in the glasses, pasta on the platters. People that you love, that's all that really matters. Now it's time to take a precious moment out to pray. Buon Natale, molto bello Christmas Day. We'll hear what you've enjoyed about traveling abroad at Christmas time in just a minute. But first, let's call on an old friend to tell us about the Christmas traditions on the west coast of Ireland. For many years, Tim Cullens and his wife ran a B&B in Dingle. He now joins his son Michael to offer van tours of local archaeological sites at ancientdingle.com. Tim, thanks for joining us. Not at all. You're quite welcome, um... Um, you wish, I think, to speak maybe on the, the Christmas festivities in Dingle? Well, Tim, yeah. Tell me, uh, what's Christmas like in the west of Ireland? Christmas is a very big occasion in, in Ireland generally, but moreover in the west of Ireland. It's very much and uh, has been a family occasion. Uh, people in olden times, of course, uh, used to return maybe from England when we had a lot of immigration. They'd come from America, they'd make off to be at home for Christmas. So that's quite a quite a party there in the villages, isn't it? Yes, indeed. And uh, it, they'd prepare maybe a week ahead of the big day. The, the housewives would be preparing food. They'd be making plum puddings, uh, Christmas cakes. Uh, they'd be getting in some turkey, some ham, uh, a bottle or two of whiskey. So the big feast is, uh, is the big feast on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve? Christmas Day is the big one. Okay. And uh, on that day, um, they would uh, prepare dinner and they'd all sit around and they would um, stay inside that day, maybe uh, say, having a bit of a party, playing cards and so forth. Uh, no one dare go out on Christmas Day. So one day the streets are deserted in Dingle is on Christmas Day. Everybody's at home with the family eating. Yes, eating and a little uh, drop of whiskey maybe, drop of Guinness, maybe some wine that was creepy in. Wine is getting pretty popular in recent years. And the ladies would have maybe a drop of port or a drop of sherry. Oh, so the port and the sherry is the ladies' drink. Yes, indeed, yes. Okay. And they'd also have Christmas crackers where they would uh, pull these across the table, you know, where there would be Christmas uh, fair and hats and jokes and these out of these Christmas um, so the kids crackers, as they call little, them. little, um, like uh, firecrackers, small firecrackers. That type of thing, yes. yes. Yeah, so okay. it's, it's very much a fun thing, and the meal could one maybe for two or three hours. No one's in a great hurry. Everyone is relaxed. Tim, what happens on Christmas Eve? Is there a big feast on Christmas Eve also? Uh, Christmas Eve is more or less uh, is leading up to the big one. Normally in Ireland, they used to eat fish on that particular day. They had a, a fish called ling, L-I-N-G. It was a type of a cod, salted, very strong, uh, strongly salted fish. And they would uh, cook that with some potatoes and some sauce. And that was more or less uh, a lead into Christmas. I gotcha. Uh, there'd be holly and ivy put up on all the, uh, the windows. Uh, lights would be put up. Christmas tree would be put up. They'll also put up the crib honoring the, the birth of Christ on the Christmas Day. That would be put up by the children would gather around and make their own cribs with the figures, and that would be put up in the central part of the house and lit up. Okay, so the kids build a, a Christmas crib, a manger scene. A manger scene, exactly, yes. Tell me about the local Santa Claus. Do you have Santa Claus just like we have? Who brings the gifts for the children? Yes, Santa Claus is a big deal here. As a matter of fact, I'll let you in a little secret. I am acting as Santa Claus in the local... Uh, hotel here over the Christmas. Say it ain't so. So I'd be wearing a different hat. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's and fun. Santa Claus brings the, the gifts at Christmas and the idea is that I'll go to bed early and leave some uh, gifts for Santa Claus in the hearth. In the hearth. So Santa Claus does come down the chimney. Down just the like... chimney and they would maybe leave out a little glass of Guinness there for him. A glass of and Guinness. And they might leave out a few carrots and a turnip for the reindeers. 
So we give milk and cookies, but Santa gets Guinness in Ireland. Guinness in Ireland for strength, you see. And then the following morning, when the kids would come down, the first thing they'd look for is the carrot. And no doubt there'd be marks on the carrot indicating where the reindeer would have nibbled. Okay. The Guinness, and would the Guinness be was gone. gone, of course, disappeared. Right. Proof positive that he had come and gone. <laughs> Tim Collins from the west coast of Ireland, thank you very much, and uh, Merry Christmas to you and all your family. And the same to you and yours. Slaan, bye bye. Cheerio. Let's hear about your Christmas time travels next at 877 333 Rick on Travel with Rick Steves. For some intrepid travelers, it's a Christmas time tradition to wander far from home for the holidays. Have you traveled overseas, into another culture, met some of Santa's cousins for a different take on the holiday season? Let's hear about your holiday travels right now on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. Abigail's on the line in Morristown, New Jersey. Abigail, thanks for your call. Hi. Hi. How have you uh, celebrated Christmas overseas? This past Christmas, I went to Finland to visit a good friend. We stayed with her family in a little town called Sahawaki, which is about 170 kilometers from the capital, Helsinki. Huh. And what was that like? Oh, it was wonderful. We sat around for, you know, Christmas dinner, which they had on Christmas Eve. They celebrate with the big dinner on Christmas Eve. And then towards the end of dessert, there was this, this hand with her in a red sleeve that came up and tapped on the window. And it turned out to be Santa Claus. And he sort of startled us. We just saw this hand that appeared. A hand in the window. (laughs) A hand in the window. And then uh, it turned out to be Santa Claus, which in Finnish is Yalapuki. And he came in and he delivered presents. And we sat around and we drank coffee. And then uh, chatted for some time. And Yalapuki spoke no English. And we spoke very little Finnish, but our friends who were hosting us for the holiday, they translated the conversation. And Santa Claus had hit a reindeer on his way to our house for the night, which is exactly the opposite of what you expect Santa Claus to do. So there was a little bit of irony and humor in that. So you got Santa Claus hurting reindeer. You got a strange Mm -hmm. sleeved arm knocking on the window in the dark. When do the Finns have their gifts then? That's the way that don't let the children hear, but that's how the parents set up the gift-giving for the children is Christmas Eve? Yes, Christmas Eve, and Santa Claus arrives, and he brings the gifts on Christmas Eve. And then we sat around and, and gave out gifts. And then late in the evening, we did a Christmas Eve sauna, because all the Finns have saunas built into their home. Now, that's what I learned. I was looking for a sauna in Helsinki, and... uh, they said there's not that many public saunas anymore because people have them at home. And uh, mm-hmm. so apparently everybody's got their sauna. How was a Christmas sauna different than a, a regular sauna? Or was it just a fact that it was midnight Christmas and they all hop into the sauna? Well, you're very full of all the Christmas food. So oh, you yeah. sit in the sauna and you relax. And, and then afterward you go, you go outside into the freezing cold where everything is covered in snow. And you walk around in your towel barefoot in the snow, but you don't even feel cold. Do um, the hardcore uh, teenagers or anything roll in the snow or anything like that from the sauna? Yeah, they do. We just walked around barefoot. We didn't roll in it, but but apparently that's what they do. So you're walking around barefoot in the snow and not even feeling the cold. It's that Yolopuki Finnish Christmas spirit. Yeah. What was the dinner like? What, What did you eat? There were lots of small different dishes. There were different types of casseroles. 
we ate different types of fish, and then there was some there was some type of berry that was almost like a cranberry. I forgot what it was called, and they made this delicious sauce with it, and they had picked the berries themselves. And then uh, the Finns love coffee, so we had lots of coffee after dinner and all throughout our visit. And we also had a drink called gluggy, which is, or gluggy, which is like mold wine, which is big in Finland around the holidays. Now, it sounds like it's, it was sort of a, a refreshing chance for you because you've had many Christmases and probably lots of childhood memories. Did you find it was kind of a way to freshen up your Christmas? Yeah, it was. It sort of brought the magic of childhood Christmas back because everything was new and everything was a surprise. So it had all of this this exciting Christmas magic because you never knew what was going to happen next. It was really special to get to stay with this family that we were good friends with because, you know, they showed us around their town. On Christmas Day, we went and took a little hike in the woods and it was snowing and it was very beautiful. Nice. And then um, the mother, the mother that we were staying with, she was a school teacher. So we went and we got to visit their school, which I think when traveling, that's always one of the coolest things is getting to visit, you know, schools and grocery stores and seeing how such ordinary things are so different from how they are at home. It really shows you a lot about the culture. Absolutely. To have friends and to be there, especially during holiday time. And, and now, Abigail, you can invite your Finnish friends to a Christmas in New Jersey someday. Yeah, definitely. All right. Definitely. Hey, thanks for your call and Merry Christmas. Yeah, thank you. You too. We're sharing our Christmas memories from our travels. And Janet's on the line from Manhattan Beach in California. Hey, Janet. Hi, Rick. Thanks for your call. What are your uh, memories of travel during Christmas? Well, I've gone two times at two Christmas market tours. And we also have a daughter that lives in Norway. And so we have started or ended our Christmas market trips in Norway. We went in July, and my my daughter's mother-in-law fixed Christmas dinner for us. She set her table with Christmas dishes and fixed a whole Christmas dinner. It was in the west side of Norway, and so we had pinochet with boiled potatoes and mashed rutabaga, and that was dinner with a special brew in a can. <laughs> what is pinochet, first of all? Pinochet is, I believe it's sheep ribs that uh-huh. have been dehydrated, and when you go into the delis, you'll find them hanging by wires, and they, they buy them, and then they take them home, and then they are rehydrated for about, I think it's 24 hours. They're soaked in water. Uh-huh. And then in the morning of Christmas, they put the water in the bottom of a pan. They put the ribs in with some, they put some birch sticks in the bottom, put the pinochet in top, and then cover it and bake it all day long. Wow. And so... The ribs have very little meat, but you get two or three on your plate, and um, that's dinner. <laughs> and this is what you had in Bergen on the west of Norway. It was it was north of Bergen, but uh-huh. it was on in yeah Bergen. on the west yeah. coast. Nice. And, yeah, so it was kind of fun, and to have that in July was a little bit of a treat. Janet, you were in Norway. Were you there for the Santa Lucia festivities? Well, actually, yes. We were there on Santa Lucia this last year. And my grandson was four years old, and we went to his preschool and saw the Santa Lucia children's procession into the, into the classroom. And, of course, it's 8 o'clock in the morning, and it's still dark. So the children are dressed all in white robes, and they come in holding their little electric candles, singing Santa Lucia. So they have little electric candles, and uh, my memory was a, a beautiful, adorable little girl with, a, with like a wreath of, of electric yes. candles. 
Yes, so there she's, was one special girl. Uh-huh. Like she's, uh, I would imagine in the old days, it would be a girl that would actually have candles in her in her crown, kind of, as she leads the procession in. And this is Santa Lucia Day. I believe it's uh, December 13th. I think so, yes. Yeah. So that must have been a gorgeous experience. It was really, really fun, and especially with the little children singing that song. It was very nice. And they had baked goodies. The, the children had helped to bake the goodies that were served to the parents and families that were there. And there's, a, there's a traditional Santa Lucia bun that they give to the, the yes. grand, grandmothers and grandfathers and so on. Yes. Well, that sounds like you're blessed to have relatives or good friends in Norway where you can uh, drop in and be part of the family. Yes, and it was great. And, you know, they also have in Bergen the largest uh, gingerbread village in the world. Huh. And what's that like? It's like a high school gymnasium. It's completely filled with gingerbread, and they gather the things from the different clubs and schools, and anyone can submit a gingerbread piece to include. And then this team puts it all together, and it's all lighted, and you walk through these curved pathways through the through the, the display. They go all the way up the walls. They have you know layers like they're up on mountains. And so it's almost a human-scale village made out of gingerbread. It is, and you'll oh. see they make airplanes. And it's like some of the schools will have like a little parade, and they'll put the faces of the children on the little gingerbread people that they make. Oh, that's beautiful. Think of all the experiences that are going on all over the world during holiday season in the winter and so many travelers uh, stay home every year and have the same thing over and over again. It's it's so fun to to branch out and try something a little different. The biggest yes. gingerbread village in the world on the fjord country of Norway. Yes. You mentioned you went to Christmas markets. What was your favorite Christmas market and why? Hmm, that's a hard question. Because Nuremberg is famously supposed to be the best. Probably Dresden. Dresden, yeah, because Dresden's a great city with a great heritage, and I think yeah. the cool thing about it Dresden actually has is, the oldest Christmas market. Is that right? Um, they, they claim it. Yeah, 584 years. So, and they have several. I mean, there are several. So you just go around the corner and you're at a different one, and each one has a little bit of a different flavor. I know they have a medieval one yeah. in another, in like one of the courtyards of one of the castles, and they all have a little bit different things. I had expected to see a lot of handcrafts and that kind of stuff. I didn't see much of that, but. The things I did buy was there was a gentleman making brushes there, and he showed us how they make the brushes, and so I bought some brushes from him. If you were a shopper, you've got the um, chimes that are powered by candles. You've got the nutcrackers, of course. You've got Mm -hmm. the smokers. Mm -hmm. All right, so there's some traditional gifts that might be uh, fun to take home as a souvenir. Hey, Janet, thanks so much for your call and sharing your Christmas memories. Well, thank you. Thank you. Do your Christmas holiday traditions include traveling overseas? We're exploring the thrills of getting away from home for the holidays right now on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. And by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. We have an email from Becky in Fort Worth, Texas. And Becky writes, Please name a few cities in Europe you've visited at Christmas that have really uh, been beautifully decorated for the season that capture the Christmas spirit. And do they decorate early in December? Well, Becky, that's one thing about European Christmas is it's a much longer season, I think, than we have in the United States as far as rituals and important days. Uh, 
it's it's a different thing in different countries. I know in uh, in Scandinavia, Santa Lucia Day in uh, a couple of weeks before Christmas is is a big deal, and people are all decorated and out singing for that. And in Italy, for example, the Christmas for the children sort of climaxes uh, on January sixth, Epiphany. That was the day the the wise men brought their gifts to the Christ child. And in Italy, that's the day the witch, La Bafana, comes. And, and if you're a good kid, you'll get good gifts. And if you're a bad kid, you'll just get a sort of a disappointment. But every uh, day throughout that period uh, around Europe, you'll find wonderful, wonderful, sacred traditions. And um, it's not as commercial as we're used to here in the United States. Places I've been to that are particularly nicely decorated, you know, I just think, Europeans love to decorate, and they uh, sometimes it's in your face, sometimes it's more sophisticated and subtle. Paris is, is famous for its high fashion sense, and it will be decorated in a high fashion sense way. Uh, one thing I really enjoy are the little presepi, the little manger scenes that you'll find in churches that are sort of, it's like open house. The churches are welcoming people to stroll in, and people actually get their kids together and walk around the town and pop into the different community centers and churches to see the manger scenes, the presepi. Uh, just like where I live, we used to always go down and see the decorations in the windows of the of the department stores. So there's lots of opportunities in Europe to connect. And also, it's a great time for sightseeing. You just got to have your warm weather clothing because it's going to be awfully cold, but people will have warmth in their hearts. Lynn's calling from Coral Springs in Florida. Hey, Lynn, have you been in London for Christmas? I have been in London so many times for Christmas, I could almost do it blindfolded. (laughs) But I've seen the progression from the early 90s to the present day, and it is a totally different world. In the beginning, I saw this horrible, scraggly tree that I believe it's Finland that donates it. Oh, Norway. Norway donates it to the city, and they put it up in Trafalgar Square. And I looked at it in the early 90s, and I thought, this is Christmas, especially after New York City, where you see that huge Christmas tree. Everything that we do in the United States is um, giant-sized. And I just looked at that thing, and I thought, "Uh uh-uh, this is the city of, I mean, the country of Dickens and Victoria and Albert Albert bringing the Christmas tree as a tradition into England. And... There was nothing. I was so disappointed. You mean with that and tree, then, with the tree on Trafalgar? Is that what you're disappointed about? Oh, yes. I'm also disappointed in the entire city. There was nothing. Oh, okay. Well, first and of all, no, let's talk about that tree for a minute, because that's quite a tradition. And I know that um, London and Norway have a long uh, sort of uh, friendly relationship, because, uh, and Norway is very thankful for it, because um, yes. London hosted the king uh, and the government in exile of Norway during World War II, when, when the Nazis took over Norway. And I, I believe ever since just after the war, the Norwegians have cut down a spruce tree. It's usually an old and, and grand tree, normally like 20 meters tall. And they actually ship it to London, and, and the mayor and the king are all involved in this big ritual. And it's been going on every year since 1947. So you saw it uh, 30 years ago. I hope the tree's a little better now. Oh, I've, I've seen it throughout the years, but I'm looking at it with these American eyes and expecting to see this absolutely grand um, spectacle, and the entire city disappointed me. Not only that scraggly tree, which will still be a scraggly tree, hardly decorated uh, in our eyes, Uh uh, even for Christmas now, but it's what has happened in the transformation throughout the years with all of London. And 
they have the most magnificent Christmas decorations you can see anywhere. New York doesn't light a candle to what you will see in London now. That's how spectacular it is. And they have a sense of artisticness, which we just put up lights in the United States. And then, as we all know, in the suburbs, you have lights groaning on trees, but excuse me, on houses. But in London, everything is just done to the nth degree. You will have angel wings spread from one side of the street to the other, and they go on and on and on down the street. And you just sit there in wonderment. How did they think of this? It's so (laughs) beautiful. Uh And Covent Garden in the market have these bulbs that are on steroids. They're huge, hanging down from the ceiling. And it's like the imagination that it took. Then Regent Street will do something different every year. Well, Lynn, Lynn, would you say when you think about these incredible decorations, are they kind of ye old and Dickensian, or are they modern and sort of, you know, like really trendy? I hate to say it, but it's modern and trendy, and Uh it's absolutely stupendous. So that's why I was saying in the beginning, I was looking for Dickensian Christmas, and there's no such thing like that (laughs) over there. It's all modern. Well, and, I think if you uh, go to a small town in the countryside, because I've I've seen Bath at Christmas and it feels quite Dickensian. But but yeah, <gasps> London's going to be kind of trendy and, and right up to date and and showing off from a modern way of of its energy as it celebrates the holidays. Modern energy is an excellent way of putting it, and it's something that I never expected when I compare it to uh, the early 90s and what I was expecting to see. Now, how does London today compare to other cities that you may have seen in Europe for Christmas? Ah, that's interesting. All of this is work-related. That's why I'm over in Europe so much. Paris underplays it because they are not in your face, like London is American in your face now. Mm -hmm. And they're very subtle, and it's very sophisticated, and the streets, the high streets, are the same as in London. High streets meaning the shopping streets. That's where you'll see most of the decorations. And in Paris, they're more understated. But I asked a friend who is a tour guide to please put together a tour for my friends to see the Christmas traditions in Paris because I really don't know them. And he brought us into some stores that I never would have walked into Mm -hmm. that had that beautiful Parisian subtlety that to this day, I can't believe it. And you would never see this in London or yeah. New York. Yeah. It was, it's magnificent. I've learned a lot. All I've right. seen a lot in the uh, cultural well, differences. And it's, it's a sight to see. You really need to be in another city so London, to understand what yours is like. Hey, well, enjoy your future holiday travels. And Lynn, thanks for calling and reporting so candidly on what you <laughs> discovered. You. Happy Christmas. Thank you very much. Okay, Rick. bye-bye. Bye-bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Donna Bardsley, and Kazmara Hall. Website uploads are by Sherry Quirt and Andrew Wakeling. Promotion support comes from Sheila Gerzoff, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You'll find more at ricksteves.com radio. Wishing you warm and healthy holidays from all of us at Travel with Rick Steves. The Rick Steves Guidebooks, over 50 of them, are consistently the best-selling series of guides to Europe. 
That's because we lovingly update them in person so you can enjoy maximum travel thrills for every mile, minute, and dollar in your next trip. Find them at your favorite bookseller and at ricksteves.com.